Hi, my name is Mike Herbster. I'm privileged to be the director of Southland Christian Camp Ministries. For over 25 years, Southland has centered itself around the ministry of preaching. We believe that God uses the foolishness of preaching to convict hearts and transform lives. Our prayer is that today's sermon would push you to become more like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As you listen, would you carefully evaluate your life in light of God's Word and take the appropriate action to grow in your walk with Him? We hope that you will enjoy today's message. Right. If you have your Bible, join me in Luke chapter 15. In Luke chapter 15, and uh, excited that you're uh, here this week. Hope you've been having a great time as uh, we've had a chance just to uh, kind of get together and have some fun. And I trust tonight God will use His Word in a powerful way. Well, if you've had a good day here at Southland, would you say amen? amen. And uh, we're looking forward to have a great night tonight as we usher in the new year. What a great chance we have just to be together as we close out 2019, as we look uh, to 2020. And uh, looking forward to see uh, what the Lord is going to do in the year to come. Well, in Luke chapter 15, this is one of the most probably familiar stories, the most famous stories that our Lord ever told. And if you know your Bible and you're already in Luke chapter 15, you see that this is the parable of the prodigal son. And we're going to take a look at the life of this young man. And, and I trust that tonight, as we look at the scriptures, if you don't know the Lord as your Savior, that tonight, that you would get saved, you would get born again. And maybe you're here, and you've sat in church, and you come from a good home, and all you're doing is just wearing the mask. You're obeying all the rules, but you are dead inside spiritually. You are just as lost as this prodigal son. And tonight, you need to get saved by the grace of God as well. And what a great way to begin the new year by having a new birth and coming to know the Lord as your Savior. And that's when everything really begins to change. And uh, we see some wonderful truth. Uh, really, we find a story uh, about, there's three characters in the story. There is the younger son, and there is the older son and the dad. The main character of this story is not the younger son. The main character is really not the older son. The main character in the story is the dad. And we're going to look at this wonderful story about how great of a God that we do have. Would you look at Luke chapter 15? And would you look at verse 11? And he said, a certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that follow to me. And he divided unto them his living. Now, many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey to a far country, and there wasted his substance with riotous living. When he had spent all there arose a mighty famine in the land, and he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would fain have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat. No man gave unto him. And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough in despair, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. So I want to preach to you a message I've entitled, What Brings Joy to the Father? Father, would you help us to understand who you are through this text of Scripture and Lord, there is some spiritual work tonight in this building that needs to be performed. And Father, I can't do it, but I know that you can. 
and I'm trusting in your word and the power of your spirit, uh, Lord, to work in the hearts of young people that are here tonight. Would you draw them close to yourself? Would you begin to convict them of their sin? Show them that there is judgment to come one day, that they will stand and give an account of their life before you and what they've done with Christ, and that there is a heaven to be gained and a hell to be shunned. Lord, I pray for those in this building under the sound of my voice that if they were to die tonight, they would be lost to a devil's hell for all eternity. God, would you work in their heart tonight? Would you draw them close to yourself? And so, Father, I pray for your blessing. I pray that you would work, that you would move in these few moments that I have as we look at your word. Thank you in advance for what you'll do. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Have you ever thought about what the perfect day would look like? You know, for some, that would be going into work, giving everything done on their to-do list. For others, that would be not going to work at all, right? That sounds like a good day to me. Uh, others, it would be maybe somewhere on a golf course, or maybe girls, it would be going to the mall and shopping, or I don't know, whatever girls do, you know? And, and I don't know, have you ever thought what the perfect day would look like? I remember several years ago, I was preaching in Hawaii. I know, suffering for Jesus in Hawaii, right? We were staying uh, at this place, and uh, I went to Travel Channel's number one rated beach. I go out there in the morning, there is not a soul out there. And uh, I'm a scuba diver, I scuba dive, but I was just snorkeling. It was probably 20, 30 feet of water and right by these cliffs. I mean, you're swimming with sea turtles and all these different, uh, all these different fish, you know, seeing all this cool stuff and seahorses and, and, and you didn't see one person in two or three hours. I was like, man, this is awesome. And then uh, later that morning, uh, my wife and I took a helicopter ride uh, over, over the island and you're flying over live volcanoes, you know, and you see all the lava and uh, there was a, a wrecked B-52 bomber that was on a part of the, uh, of the island that you can only get to uh, by air. And so we're looking at that, a 400-foot waterfall, and we're in this helicopter just following it up. And, and man, you're just seeing parts of the island you can never see on foot, you know. And, and then after that, uh, in the afternoon, I played a round of golf. And then that night, we went uh, out to eat at Outback Steakhouse. And I thought, well, sign me up for heaven. It's got to be a lot like this, I'm sure. And, and, you know, really to me, that was like the perfect day. I don't know if you've ever really thought, what really brings joy to you? Well, guess what? In this passage of scripture, we're gonna find out what brings joy to him. Would you look back at the beginning of Luke chapter 15? You can kind of get some context as to what is happening. Look at verse one. Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. So he's just spent time with these lost people. He's just spent time with them. And so now they're coming to hear him. In verse two, and the Pharisees and the scribes, these were the religious leaders of the day. And you know what the Pharisees were? They were preaching a legalistic a salv a salvific theology. They were saying, you have to work your way to heaven. You have to be good enough. And if you're good enough, God will let you into heaven. It was a works-based salvation. These Pharisees were lost. In fact, Back, the Lord confronted them and they and he said you are shutting up the kingdom of heaven to these people you're doing way more damage than you think you're doing good you need to get saved yourself and so these uh, these Pharisees and these scribes murmured they complained that's what that means saying this man receiveth sinners and eateth with him that word receiveth it means to wait for or to look for or to welcome aren't you so glad that God welcomes sinners 
Aren't you so glad that God waits for sinners to come to him, that God deals with them, that convicts them, and he is welcoming people to be saved? That is the heart of our Father. And in verse three, and he spake this parable unto them, saying, so there's three parables in Luke chapter 15. We see the first one here in verse number four is the parable of the lost sheep. I want you to look down at that parable in verse number four. It says, what man of you having a hundred sheep, if you lose one, does not leave the 99 in the wilderness and go after that which is lost until he find it? So there's 99 sheep, he loses one. There's 1% loss. So he goes out and looks for, the shepherd does, in verse five, and when he had found it, he, he, uh, he, uh, he layeth it on his shoulders, look at the next word, rejoicing. And when he cometh home, he called together his friends and neighbors, saying unto them, Rejoice, there's that word again, with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say unto you that likewise joy, there's the word again, shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth, more than over ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance. So now he gives another parable. It's the parable of the lost coin in verse eight. He says, either what woman having 10 pieces of silver, if she lose one piece, doth not light a candle and sweep the house and seek diligently till she find it. So now there's a lady, she has 10 pieces of, of silver or 10 coins, she loses one. Now it's a 10% loss, but she spends all night looking for it. And look what happens in verse nine. And when she had found it, she called her friends and her neighbors together saying, rejoice. There's that word again with me for I have found the peace which I lost. Likewise, I say unto you, there is joy. There's the word again. In the presence of the angels over God, over one sinner that repents. You know what brings joy to heaven? It's when a sinner gets saved and comes to the Lord for salvation. So that's what brings joy to the Father. And so our Lord is really on his way to, to Jerusalem and he's, uh, and he's really uh, headed up there and he's on his way to spend his last days in Jerusalem and uh, he stops. And this is one of the last uh, messages or, that he preaches uh, and, and that he gives. Actually, Matthew chapter 23 records that last one and that is to the Pharisees. But really he is addressing the whole purpose of these three parables is what he is doing is the, 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 the purpose of these parables is to preach to these Pharisees. And they said, hey, you can be good enough into heaven. You can stack one good work upon another and upon another and somehow get in the good graces of God. You don't need a savior. You can get to heaven on your own. And God is gonna show you the two uh, limits of his grace. He is gonna give you a picture in these two boys as to the kind of wicked sinners that God could save. But I want you to look at this parable of the lost son. First of all, I want you to see, number one, the rebellion of the son. Look at the rebellion rebellion of this son. We begin to see this in verse 11. And he said, a certain man had two sons and the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And so really the younger son could not receive the inheritance really until the dad died. So you know what he's telling his dad? He's basically saying, dad, I wish you were to drop dead. I could care less about you. I just want what's coming to me. And the Bible says, and his father divided unto them his living. The word living is the Greek word bios. We get our English word biology from that word. And so the word that is used here for giving the portion of goods that follow to me, it's not the normal word that is used for inheritance. That just talks about money. This is a word that is much broader than that. So what would happen is, according to Levitical law, the dad, if he had two sons, he would give the older son two thirds of the farm and everything that he had. He 
he would give the younger son a third. <clears throat> but it wasn't just money. We're talking about livestock. We're talking about buildings. We're talking uh, about uh, uh, all of the farming equipment. We're talking about the, just everything that goes along with it. And so what they would do is you would uh, kind of grow the farm and you would buy more land and you would buy more animals. And so when you had kids, you would divide that out and the farm would technically get bigger and bigger and bigger. This is how they would have these farms and their family for hundreds of years. And, uh, and so that, that was his living. And so the Bible says he divided unto them his living. So you know what? Basically, you, when we read this story, you've got to understand the story of the prodigal son in the light of what it meant in Jewish culture in first century Mediterranean living. And when you begin to look at it in that eyes, boy, this story starts to take on some color. You know what he's basically saying? Dad, I don't want anything to do with you. I don't want anything to do with this family. I don't want any responsibility years down the road. I don't want anything to do with anybody. I don't want to live under your rules. I want to go out and live however I want. I wish you were to drop dead and just give me what's coming to me. And look at the disrespect that he shows his dad. Again, when the Pharisees are listening to this story, they're thinking, you know what? If that kid lived in the Old Testament, they would have stoned him. In fact, they were probably calling, uh, if this has actually happened, they would probably call that that kid be stoned. And they're like, this is ridiculous. That kid is a shame. So notice how he disrespects his dad in verse 13. And by the way, you know what? There are some kids probably in this room that you did the same thing to your mom and dad. There could be some young people in this room tonight, you're not right with God because you're not right with a mom and dad and you may disrespect them all the time. The Bible says, honor your father and mother. Children, obey your parents and the Lord for this is right. It talks about honoring your father and mother which is the first commandment or promise that it may be wealthy and thou mayest live long on the earth. You know, honoring your mom and dad is not just doing the right action, but it's doing the right action and doing it with the right attitude. Could it not be that there could be some young people here in this room tonight that your dad shut his door to his office and maybe got down on his knees and said, oh God, would you just get a hold of my daughter at winter camp? Maybe there were some moms this morning that slumped over their morning coffee and just said, oh God, would you get a hold of my son at winter camp? Maybe right now you're hiding things from your mom and dad. You know they don't want you involved in, but you've done it anyway and you're hiding it from them and you're not right with God tonight because you didn't do the right action or maybe you didn't do it with the right attitude and you're disrespecting your mom and dad. Notice how this man disrespects his parents and says, just give me the portion of goods that follow to me. But look back at Luke chapter 15. And notice in verse 13, and not many days after, the younger son gathered all together. And so you can really see how this young man, he couldn't wait to get out of the house. By the way, some of you are saying, you know what? I just have to live under these rules. And you know what? It's a drag, but you, I can't wait till I turn 18. I can move out of this house. I can do whatever I want and I can live however I want. And I don't have to live under these stupid rules. And you know what? You are just like this younger son. That's the exact attitude that he had. So not many days after, he couldn't wait to get out of that place. The younger son gathered all together. That is a Greek word that has the idea that he liquidated everything into cash. He sold the, he sold the land, he sold the buildings, he sold all the animals, he turned it all into cash because now he can't wait to get out of this place. 
And so the Bible says in verse 13, and not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and he took his journey into a far country. Now that doesn't necessarily mean that he traveled geographically very far because you could go on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, there were Gentile cities there, that none of the Jews were to go to those cities, that he could have lived however he wanted, and nobody would have called it into question. That was just normal life for them. And so he definitely went into a city that was uh, really devoid of anything about God. It was like going to Sin City. He could do whatever he wanted, and nobody would even question it. So he took his, his journey into his far country, and the Bible says, there wasted his substance with riotous living or lawless living. But when the Bible says he wasted his substance, it uses a Greek word, which is very interesting. The word wasted his substance has the idea of a farmer that is sowing seed. You know, a farmer would have a bag and he would sow seed and he would throw it out in every direction. This is the word picture that in our holy inspiration of scripture that God gives out. You know what? This kid walked into this city with all the inheritance money and all the stuff he liquidated into cash. And he was literally spent spending money so much that he was just throwing it like seed in the wind, just like a farmer would be. And he was just throwing his money anywhere, everywhere. He wasted his substance with riotous living. You know what? He thought that the money would make him happy. He thought that all the pleasures of this world will make him happy. And that's exactly maybe how some people in this room, you think those are the things that are going to make you happy. But you know what, gang? Sin only lasts for a season. The devil wants you to think that you can live however you want and you'll never have to pay a price and that the pleasures of your sin will satisfy you. Well, he gets his chance. He goes into this city. He lives however he wants. The older brother at the end of the story, he said he wasted his substance with harlots. This guy walks in. He gets involved in immorality. He just lives however he wants and he thinks that this is going to make him happy. And the Bible says that he wasted his substance with riot living, but look at verse 14. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in the land and he began to be in want. You know what, gang? The pleasures of your sin will never satisfy you. You can go live for the immorality. You can live for that guy, that girl. You can live for sports or whatever pleasure it is that you think is gonna make you happy. And without Christ, it is all miserable. Solomon said it's like chasing the wind. He said all is vanity. Solomon had everything. In chapter two of Ecclesiastes, he said, therefore I hated life. This guy walks into the city. He is buying whatever he wants to buy. He is doing whatever he wants to do with his body, giving in to sexual sin and all types of wickedness. And he thinks, man, this is the stuff that's gonna make him happy. Then a famine hits and he began to be in want. He realized that all this stuff doesn't satisfy you when you get him. And there may be some young people here in this room under the sound of my voice that you're just living for the world and you think that the immorality or you think the drugs or you think the alcohol and you think all the pleasures of this world somehow are gonna make you happy. But you know what you're gonna realize? Just like this young man did, you know what? None of it lasts and none of it really satisfies. He began to be in want. And so you know what the, the kid does? He does what every sinner tries to do. Well, I'm going to pull myself up by my own bootstraps. I'm just going to fix things in life and I'm going to change everything. Look, and tried to work it out himself. In verse 15, and he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country. When the Bible says he joined himself, the word joined is the word for glue. 
You know what the picture is? That this guy goes to a Gentile farmer and he literally is grabbing onto his legs and he is gluing himself to this Gentile farmer. So again, remember this. As the Pharisees are hearing the story, they're thinking this kid was so disrespectful to the dad. That kid ought to be stoned. Man, that kid ought to die. And now this kid goes into the city. He's, he's, he's sleeping around, spending his money on harlots. He's, he's just living like the world. Man, that kid would die. And you know what? For the Jewish culture, it was a shame to work for a Gentile. And now the kid goes to work for a Gentile. But man, it doesn't stop there. And so you know what the farmers did? The Gentile farmers, you know how they got rid of beggars? That they would send them out in the field to feed swine. That's how they would get rid of him. So notice what happens in verse 15. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. Remember pigs were, that was like the most unclean animal to a Jew. They didn't want anything to do with pigs. And, and so again, these Pharisees are thinking, look at how wicked this kid is and how what a shame this kid is. Man, he's working for this Gentile farmer. He's taking care of the pigs. He's disrespected his dad. Look at the wicked way he's living. Man, that kid is the picture of shame. He ought to be stoned. In verse 16, and he would fain have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat. And no man gave unto him. He couldn't even wrestle away the carob pods that these pigs were eating. And that's undigestible to a human being. And he couldn't even wrestle away their food. And the Bible says no man gave unto him. You know what that implies? That implies that he was begging. All the money's gone, all the friends are gone. He's literally on the side of the road, broken, destitute, he doesn't have anything, begging and getting ready to die. And the Pharisees are listening to this and they think, well, that serves that kid well. That's exactly what that kid deserves. And you know what, there's some guys, some girls in this room that you live for the things of the world and you think all of your sin and all of the pleasures the world has to offer is gonna make you happy, and you've tried to live from one fun thing to the next fun thing, but maybe you've cried yourself more to sleep more times than you would care to remember, thinking, man, there's got to be more to life than this, and there is, and his name is Jesus Christ in a relationship with him. And, and maybe you can identify with his younger son, and you've walked in here, and maybe you've done some terrible, some wicked things you wish you never would have done, and you know that I'm shooting it straight. And you're just like this younger son. And we see the rebellion of this younger son. We see, number one, his rebellion. But number two, I want you to see his repentance. Notice the repentance of the son. We don't, in this passage, we don't have everything about biblical repentance uh, that the Bible teaches. But I mean, we have a wonderful picture of what real repentance really looks like. When you repent of your sin, that is not you just cleaning up your life and getting off drugs and stop drinking alcohol and stop sleeping around and clean up your life and then God accepts you. You know what repentance is? It's a Greek word, it means metanuo. It means a change of mind. You know what repentance is? Is when you come to the point where you say, God, I've done some wicked things. God, I have blown it. God, I don't deserve to be saved, but I don't want my sin. God, I need you. It's a change of your mind. That's really what repentance is. But look what happens in the repentance of this son. Look at verse 17. The Bible says, and when he came to himself. 
You know what happened? First of all, he acknowledged his condition. Man, he woke up and he said, look at where the pleasures of my sin got me and look at where I am. He finally woke up and realized what was going on. You know, some kids in this room, you need to wake up. You need to realize the road you're going down is a road of destruction by your own hand. And really when someone gets saved, they come to a point where they acknowledge their condition and they realize that they're a sinner. They have done some terrible, some wicked things. And the Bible says, and when he came to himself, he said, how many hired servants of my father have bread enough and despair and I perish with hunger? The interesting thing in this text, when he says, how many of my, hire, my father's hired servants have have bread enough in despair. The word for hired servants is the only time that it appears, that Greek word appears in the New Testament. The only time. It's not used of a regular worker that would be paid, uh, you know, in, in a house. It refers to day laborers. You know, probably in your town, you could probably find a corner somewhere where uh, people gather, like men gather, and uh, you could go to that corner and say, hey, I have uh, some brush that needs to be removed from my property, and uh, I need about five to 10 guys to work. I'll pay you $10 an hour. I'll feed you lunch, and if you're looking for a job, just hop in, you know, and, and usually the day laborers were those that had fallen on hard times. Usually they were unskilled, and in the first century, the day laborers, those were people that were just in a lower class of society and there was a Jewish law that you had to pay these guys by the end of the day because many of them needed that food in order to live. And so these are just day laborers. These are guys that are not skilled. And, and, and he says, look at these day laborers. They have bread enough and to spare. And here he's thinking, man, and I'm dying of hunger. It really shows you how generous the father was to begin with. My dad has taken care of all of these day laborers and here I am dying with hunger. He acknowledged his condition, but notice he abandoned his conduct. He says in verse 18, he says, I will arise. You know that city that he thought, man, every wicked thing in this city that's gonna make me happy, I can't wait till I get out and I can live on my own. You know what? He realized that there wasn't the pleasure in it that he thought and he wanted to turn his back to that. He says, I'm gonna rise and go to my father. Let me tell you, there are some here that maybe you're planning as soon as I turn 18, man, I am done with the rules of my house. I am hitting the door and I'm gonna live however I want. You know where you're gonna find it's not all cracked up to be what you think it is. And the pleasures of this world will never satisfy you. But there was an abandonment of his conduct. You know, man, all that stuff that had been involved in, that didn't make me happy. Man, I don't want that stuff. Man, man, I, I need help from my dad. There was an acknowledgement of his, of his condition. There was an abandonment of his conduct. I'm gonna look back at the text. He says in verse 18, I'll arise, go to my father, and will say to them, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before thee, there was an admission of his guilt. Nobody ever got saved until you came to the point where you realized that you were a sinner. Here's this kid. He's broken. He's destitute. He comes to his dad. Nothing to bring to the table. No good works. There's no reason the dad should ever take him back. That's how everyone who gets saved, how we come to the cross. 
You don't bring anything to the table. There's nothing about you that God owes you that you deserve God's grace. And there's nothing that we've done that we have merited this great salvation. All of us are broken. We're destitute. We bring nothing to the table. And when you get saved, there is an acknowledgement of your condition. There is an abandonment of your conduct. There is an admission of your guilt. But notice also there's an acceptance of his consequences. Notice what he also says at verse number 19. It says, I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and I'm no more worthy to be called thy son. Tesu says is the Greek word. It literally means I have sinned into heaven. You know what? It could have been that the boy thought I have sinned so much that if I were to stack my sin one upon another upon another, it would literally reach into heaven. He said, I have sinned against heaven and into heaven and I've sinned against you. I'm no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy higher servants. He was willing to accept the consequences. And when you get saved, you come to the point where you realize God doesn't owe me anything. I have broken his law and I have disrespected him and rebelled against him and he would be just and worthy to send me to an awful place called hell. Really, God doesn't send you there. You send yourself there when you reject Jesus Christ. There's an acceptance of his consequences, but notice there's an aspiration of the Father's mercy. He said, make me as one of thy hired servants. He had nowhere else to go, and he thought, you know what? If I could just go back to my dad, maybe, just maybe, he'll take me in. And when the Pharisees are hearing this story, you know what they're thinking? The only chance this kid has is to go home, live outside the city as a servant, work, get all the money that he had lost and wasted, which would take him 10 lifetimes, repay the dad, and then maybe the dad would think about accepting him back into the family. That's how their mind worked. You had to pay to get restored as a son. That's the way they believed about heaven. You had to pay and do good works in order to get back into heaven. And so here you see this son's rebellion, but you here you see his repentance. And we don't know everything about uh, repentance in this passage, but it's a pretty good picture. And I tell you, when someone gets saved, you know what they do? They, re- they recognize and acknowledge their condition. God, I'm a sinner. God, I don't want my sin. That's gonna damn me to hell. God, I want you. There's an abandonment of their conduct and there is an admission of their guilt. God, I've sinned against you and I've done so many wicked things. I don't deserve to be forgiven. And I deserve to go to hell. There's an acceptance of your consequence, but there's an aspiration the Father's mercy. God, would you just save me? Would you bring me into your family? Here's the question. Has that ever happened to you? Have you ever had a conversation like that with him? Listen, salvation is not you walking down an aisle, praying a prayer, filling out a card. A prayer never saved anyone. The blood of Jesus Christ saves you. It's not what you do, it's the faith that you place in the living Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what regenerates your heart. It's through the power of a risen Savior and through his cross. Has this ever really happened to you? And it's a picture of repentance. But I want you to see, number three, the reception of the Son. And really here you come to the climax of the story. I want you to look at verse 20. So he arose in verse 20. 
and he came to his father. But yet when he was a great way off, his father saw him. You know what that implies? That the dad was watching. And it may be since the day that that kid left that that dad stood on that wall and maybe he prayed for that son and maybe he waited for that son and he was looking every day and eventually this son came back. I want you to see, you know what? That God, our heavenly father, responds, number one, with patience. You realize that you may have stiff-armed God over and over and over again, but God is waiting for you tonight. It's no accident that you're here at South and Christian Camp for a winter retreat tonight hearing the gospel. You may have walked into this building and you didn't come planning on meeting God, but God came planning on meeting you. And he's been so patient for you and you have made wicked choice after wicked choice after wicked choice. Could I tell you tonight that God is waiting for you? We have a God who responds with patience. But look also what the dad does. And, and so when he was a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion. The dad responded with patience. The dad responded with compassion. You know what the fact is? God loves you just like this father loved his son. God loves you tonight. Yes, you personally. For God so loved the world. If you were to take all seven billion people that grace the face of this planet tonight, line them up in a single file line, God would walk up to every one of them, look in the eye and say, I love you, I love you, I love you. Listen, gang, you're special to God. He made you. He loves you. He's got a great plan for your life. He set his son to die and take your place and suffer the wrath of God so that you could be adopted into his family. He loves you much more than you could ever even imagine. We have a God who loves you. We have a God who responds with compassion. But notice he says, and when he saw him a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion. And look at this and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. Again, you need to understand what's going on here in the eyes of the Jewish culture in the first century. You know what the fact is? The first century Mediterranean living, this culture was all about respect. It was all about honor. And so many of the Middle Eastern men, they didn't run. You know why? Because they had robes on, and if you were to run, that you had to pick up your robe a little bit so you don't trip over it so you could run. In fact, it was a shame in the Jewish culture to even show your ankle from your robe. They actually, the Pharisees, had 50 volumes of rules that you had to keep in order to get into heaven. People couldn't even assimilate all 50 volumes, let alone obey every rule. And one of the rules that they actually had, if a bird got underneath your robe on the Sabbath, you had to wait till the next day to get the bird out. Girls, could you imagine having a long dress on and a bird get underneath your dress? Bummer if it's a woodpecker, right? You know what? And, uh, and you, you know what you're saying, man, I'm not waiting to the Sabbath. I'm getting that bird out right now. But that's like to the extreme of what they took it to. It was a shame to even show your ankle. You know what the dad does? The dad gathers his robe together, his knees are exposed, and he starts running out to the sun. And remember, the Pharisees are listening to this, and they're thinking, what in the world is the dad doing? That dad is a bigger shame than the kid was. What is this guy doing? You know why many scholars believe the dad ran out of the town and fell on his son and hugged him and kissed him? Because if this son got close enough to the city, 
they would have stoned him. So the dad runs out there. And he puts his arms around his son, maybe even taking the rocks on his back that would crush the skull of his son. And he's holding on to his son, willing to give his back and his body to be broken in order to save his son. That's how much he loved his son. Can I tell you that this is exactly what God has done for every person in this room? That everybody in this room, you are lost and dead in the trespasses of your sin and you deserve to die and to go to hell. And over 2,000 years ago, God ran out of heaven in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he came to this earth and he lived a sinless life as he collected the dust of this earth on his feet. He lived a sinless life, never sinned one time. He lived a perfect life. And when Jesus Christ was dying on the cross, in essence, he was wrapping his arms around you and he was taking taking the wrath of God all on himself. He was taking the judgment of your immorality, of your drinking, of your pornography, and your anger, and your bitterness, and your discontentment, and your anxiety, and all of your fear, and all of your misgivings, that God was punishing Jesus. If he had, he had done those things, he was putting his arms around you to shield you from the wrath of God so that you might live. Many years ago, there was a group of men in the, in the Civil War, they were known as bushwhackers. They were men in mixed uniform. They would wear the shirt of the Union Army, the pants of the Confederate Army, and they would conduct guerrilla warfare. So when these guys came out of the woods, the north or the south, either side, didn't know whether to hug these guys or to shoot them. They didn't know what side they were on. So both sides treated bushwhackers the same as traitors. And many times they would sentence them to die by a firing squad. On one particular day, a group of 20 men were caught in mixed uniform. They were bushwhackers. They were sentenced to die by a firing squad. They had dug their own graves. They were standing bound hand and in foot, chains around their hand and their feet, standing in front of a grave that they had just dug. The general raised his sword. He says, ready, aim, but before he could say fire, a 15-year-old boy, true story, ran into that Civil War camp. He ran in front of one of these trees and his bushwhackers, shielding that man's wicked body with his own innocent 15-year-old body. The general said, son, get out of the way. The 15-year-old boy said, sir, please do not kill this man. His wife has just given birth. There were complications in the delivery she is going to die. And if you kill the husband, then the baby and all of the other seven kids, they're gonna have no parents in this life. Please have mercy on this man. The general said, son, that man committed a crime and somebody must pay for it. The 15-year-old boy said, if somebody must pay for his crime, would you let me take his place in the firing squad? Equally amazing, the general agreed. They took the chains off that treasonous bushwhacker, off of his hands and off of his feet. He walked out of that Civil War camp a free man. They took that innocent 15-year-old boy, they tied his hands, they tied his feet in front of a grave that was meant for another man. The general raised his sword and he says, ready, aim, fire. 20 shots rang out that day. 
19 lifeless bodies of treasonous bushwhackers fell back into their shallow grave along with the innocent, lifeless body of a 15-year-old boy. In the middle of the night, that treasonous bushwhacker that had been set free by the sacrifice of this 15-year-old boy, he snuck back into that Civil War camp. He found where that young man was buried. You know how he knew where the grave was? He had dug it with his own hands. He clawed through the loose dirt. He crabbed that the lifeless, innocent body, that 15-year-old, he held him close to his chest. He went back up into the mountains. He gave this young man a proper burial. And the story is told time and time again how this man would go back to that boy's grave and pay his respects for the young man that gave his life a ransom for his own. My friend, don't you see it tonight? that every single one of us, we have broken God's law. We've all done some terrible and wicked things and one day we're gonna face the firing squad of God's wrath and die and go to an awful place called hell. The Bible says the wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God. In Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. Let me tell you, there is a judgment upon us if we are sinners. The soul that sins, Ezekiel 18, 4, the soul that sins, it shall die. But you know what? God loved you so much that he raised out of heaven and when Jesus died on the cross he was basically taking your place in God's firing squad and you know what it was us who should have been on that cross it was us who should have been beat unrecognizable as a human person it was us who should have had those nails pierced through our hands and through our wrists and it was us who had should have that nail pierced through our feet and it was us who should have the sword thrust in our side and pulled out but when Jesus died on the cross he was taking all of your sin he was taking your punishment he was taking your pornography, your immorality, your stealing, your lying. He was taking your hell all on himself here in his love. Not that we love God, but that God loved us and set his son to be our propitiation for our sins. The dad responds with patience, compassion, and forgiveness. And I'm telling you, gang, we have a God tonight right here that's just been waiting for you. And he loves you far greater than you could ever imagine. And he's ready to throw his arms around you and to take the punishment that you deserve for your son. But notice this dad in verse 21. And the son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Now I want you to follow this. This is very important to the passage and I think that you'll be able to get this. When the kid was back in the city, he said three things. He says, I'm gonna go home and this is what I'm gonna say. Dad, I've sinned against you and against heaven. I'm no more worthy to be called thy son. And the third part was make me one of your hired servants so I could pay for all that that I wasted and be back into the family. So when he gets there to the dad, he starts having that conversation with the dad, but he doesn't make it all the way through. Look back at it. In verse 21, the son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and in thy sight, right? There's the first part, and I'm no more worthy to be called thy son. There's the second part. But the third part is left out. You know what that is? Make me as one of thy hired servants. 
all the dad heard was, you know what, dad? I've sinned against you and I am no more worthy to be called your son. You know what? That confession was good enough for the dad. He didn't even need to hear the part about making restitution and paying for all that he had lost. You know why? Because salvation is a gift. You don't earn it. You don't deserve it. It's a gift that is given to us. All the dad hears is, you know what? I am sinned against you and no more worthy to be called thy son. Look what the dad says in verse 22. But the father, he interrupts him, doesn't even let him finish. He says to his servants, bring forth the best robe. The word best is the Greek word protos, and it means first. In other words, bring the first robe. This was a robe in Jewish culture that the most prominent figure in the family would have worn at the most prominent events, at a wedding or at a funeral. This was a robe that was traditionally given to the oldest son. And so you know what the dad says? Hey, bring the Protoss robe. You know what, guys? All of you have a best suit, right? You know what, girls? All of you have a best dress. This was the best robe. This was the Protoss robe. In other words, this should have gone to the oldest son, but he gives it to the younger son. He said, bring the best robe, the Protoss robe. And he says, and put it on him and put a ring on his hand. Now you read that and you just fly by that. You know what? That was a huge significance. This was a signet ring that was usually handed down to the older son. It would have the family crest on it. And the way they would conduct business is they would take that ring they would dip it in wax and they would put it on a piece of paper. That's how they notarized business deals back then. That was like your way of signing something and making a purchase. Again, this was traditionally given to the older brother, but now to hear this kid comes back who wasted all this money, who disrespected his dad and lived like the world. And he says, you know what? Get the best robe, put it on him. Hey, take this signet ring, should have gone to the older son and give it to the younger son. And then notice what it says here. And and put shoes on his feet. Do you realize nobody in the house had shoes? Not even the servants. The only people in the house that had shoes were family members. You know what the dad was saying? All the kids said was, man, I don't want my sin. God uh, or dad, I need you. I've sinned against you and I'm no more worthy to be called thy son. Good enough for the dad. And you know what the dad does? Give him the, the protest robe. He gives him the signet ring. He puts the shoes back on him. And you know what the dad was saying? Full forgiveness. Full restoration back into the family. He didn't have to work for it. There's no way he could earn it. It was full restitution. The father responded with patience, with compassion, with forgiveness, and the father responded with restitution. And you realize, can God right here doesn't matter? I don't care. Listen, what you did 10 years ago or what you did 10 minutes ago, God can forgive you. And he's just waiting to adopt you into his family. And he's waiting to make you a, a, a child of his and adopt you into his family. First John 1, 7, the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. The dad responds with patience, with compassion, with forgiveness, with restitution. But the father, he also responded really in celebration. Notice what the dad says in verse 23. And bring hither the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and be merry. The fatted calf was corn-fed veal. In other words, this would take about six to eight hours to prepare and would feed about six to 800 people. This dad was gonna throw a party to end all other parties. 
Go kill that fatted calf because we're going to rejoice. My son is back. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and he began to be merry. Listen, the angels in heaven rejoice when you come to them, when you just get honest with God about your spiritual condition and you turn from your sin and you throw yourself on the mercy of the Father. Listen, for whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. There is a gift that is being offered to you tonight. It doesn't matter what you've done or how wicked you've been. God can save you and that God has been waiting in patience just like the father and with compassion and he wants to restore you into his family and he wants to celebrate about it stop running from him and man run to him he's so good and you can have eternal life tonight you're going to live on this planet 80 90 100 years at best we're talking about living in heaven for eternity. Man, why would you throw that away? But fourthly and lastly, I want you to see the rejection of the son. Not everybody was happy about the younger son coming home. Look at verse 25. Now his elder son was in the field. This is the part of the parable that a lot of guys don't preach, but this is the point of the parable. Look at it. Now as the elder son was in the field and he came and drew nigh to the house, he heard music and dancing. Man, what's going on in the house? Hear all that music and dancing? And he called one of the servants in verse 26 and asked what these things meant. What's going on in the house? Notice, so all the boys, they wouldn't go into the party. They weren't allowed. They were on the outside of the house. And so the older brother doesn't go in. He calls the boys out, says, man, what's going on in the house? In verse 27, and he said, the boys said unto him, thy brother is come and thy father hath killed the fatted calf because he hath received him safe and sound. The word safe and sound, that is a Greek word. We get our English word hygiene from. In other words, he found him in wellness and he wasn't dead. Look at verse 28. And he was angry. The Pharisees, when they're listening to this story, they're like, this dad is a bigger shame than the kid. He goes out there and runs and shames himself and falls down on him and covers him with his own body. Man, this kid ought to be killed. What in the world? This dad is an idiot. What is he doing? Man, this is such a disrespect. This boy needs to pay his respect and work his way back into the family. And now he is given full restoration back in the family. The dad is off his rocker. This is literally what the Pharisees are thinking as Jesus is telling the story. And you know what? The brother got angry. Cannot believe dad would bring him back in. First of all, he was unsettled. He was so angry and he would not go in. Cannot believe my dad would do that. You know what the number one reason as I travel around this country and around the world for the last 20 years, you know what the number one reason why I find people are so hard to the gospel, why they are so resistant to God is because something happened in their past. Maybe a, a death of a dad or a mom or a spouse, a loss of a family member. Maybe they got cancer. There was something that happened to them in their past that was very hurtful and difficult. And they blame him. And they're so angry 
at God. God, if you really love me, why would you ever let this happen? And maybe there is some here tonight that maybe that's you. God, I don't know why in the world you would ever let this happen to me in my life. You know what? If this is your love, well, no thanks. I don't want any of that. And you know what? You are mad at God. Listen, you have fallen into the trap of the devil and the devil wants you to turn your back on the only person who could help you. The devil doesn't care about you. He wants you to be damned for eternity and your anger is gonna keep you out of heaven. You're so mad at God. But notice this older brother that he was unsettled or he was angry. And he, would, he was angry and he would not go in. Would you look at this in verse 28? Therefore came his father out and entreated him. The dad ran to the older son just like he ran to the younger one. Do you see that? He went out there. And he answering said to his father, Lo, these many years do I serve thee. Neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment. And yet thou never even gavest me a kid that I might make merry with my friends. Listen, this brother goes out, lives wickedly. You killed the fatted calf. I stay at home. I obey all the rules. I've never done anything wrong. And you don't even give me a goat. But as soon as this son was come, which had devoured thy living with harlots, thou was killed, the fatted calf. And you know what the Pharisees are thinking? Finally, somebody in the story who gets it. Finally, somebody is talking some sense into the dad, or so they thought. And you know what the younger son says? Dad, I don't need to ask forgiveness from you. You ought to be asking forgiveness from me. And there are some people in this room, that's exactly how you see God. You're saying, you know what, God? I don't need to confess to you. You need to ask my forgiveness for the things you have allowed in my life, and it's totally upside down. He is unsettled, and you know what, man? He is ungrateful. There really are kids in this room. You grow up in good homes, and you know what? You obey the rules. You walk into church every Sunday. You carry your Bible. You know how to wear the mask. You know the right things to say to make it look like you got it all together, like you don't have a struggle in the world, and all the while on the inside, on the outside, it looks like you got it all together, but on the inside, man, it is all wrong, and you know how to wear the mask and you know how to make it look like you got it all under control but on the inside you're just thinking you know what I could care less about this family I'm just going to do whatever I want I don't care about living for God and you're just waiting till you can get out of the house and you know what you're just like that this older brother he's like you know what I've never done anything wrong well that's a joke listen if this older brother really loved the dad where was he when the younger son said dad drop dead if he really loved the dad, you know what he should have been saying? Hey, don't talk to dad that way. He wanted the same thing. I want to go out and live life how I want to. He was just being a little more subtle in how he was going to get it. I'll stay at home. I'll live by the rules. But man, when it's 18, I'm out of here. That's exactly what some of you think. I'm going to leave church. I'm going to go out to college. I'm going to live however I want. My mom and dad aren't going to cramp my lifestyle. Let me tell you, you are just as lost as this older brother. The younger brother was lost, but so was the older brother. You know who the older brother is in the story? He, that's the Pharisees. They, they thought, hey, I've never done anything wrong. I've lived a good life. We don't need a savior. Who do you think we are? And you know what? They were just as lost. This was the prodigal who stayed home. 
and he was unsettled. He was ungrateful. He was unbroken. He says, but as soon as this thy son was come, which I devoured thy living with harlots has killed the fatted calf. But lastly, he was unaware. And he said in him, son, thou art ever with me and all that I have is thine. It was meet that we should make merry and be glad for this thy brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. You know what? The older brother was just as lost as the younger brother, but he was in a worse condition. You know why? At least the younger brother realized that he was lost and he was in trouble, but the, younger, but the older brother was completely unaware. And there are some of you, let me tell you, just because your dad teaches Sunday school or your mom works in Awana, that doesn't mean you're on your way to heaven. God doesn't have any grandkids. You've got to come to a point where you make a decision in your own life to turn from your sin and to trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. And you know what Jesus is doing in the story? He's showing you really the two limits of God's grace. Yes, God can save those who sink to the utter depths and they get involved in every wicked kind of sin. But you know what? There's another kind of sinner in this room. That's the sinner who you think, hey, I'm doing pretty good. I've never done anything wrong. I don't need a savior. Hey, I'm living life pretty well and you're respected, but you don't have a relationship with Christ and you are just as lost and you are gonna populate a devil's hell unless you get saved by the grace of God. We don't know if the, if the in the story, obviously it's made up, Jesus is telling it. We don't know if the older brother ever repented, but that's not the point. The question is, what are you gonna do with Jesus Christ right now? What are you gonna do with this loving father who right here, right now, can save you and settle where you would spend eternity in heaven? What are you gonna do with Jesus Christ? Has there ever been a point in time in your life you've ever turned from your sin, acknowledged your sin, and trusted the Lord? Let me tell you, that night tonight, God could save you. He could wash away every wicked thing you ever would have done. The question is, what are you gonna do with Jesus Christ? Listen, this is what brings joy to the Father when you turn your heart to him and you get saved. It's what brings joy to the Father, but really the question is, what are you tonight going to do with Jesus Christ? Thanks so much for tuning in to the Southland Podcast. May the message you've just heard be truth that transforms your heart and life. Christ loves you and wants you to grow in His grace through salvation and sanctification. If you've never placed your faith and trust in the finished work of Christ, we'd love to talk to you personally. Please give us a call at 318-894-9154 or shoot me an email at mherpster at southlandcamp.org. Christ has promised eternal life and a life worth living if you will only believe in Him. May the Lord bless you in your pursuit of Christ-like living. 
Tune in next time right here for another message on the Southland Podcast.